The Old Pilot's Plain Tales, The Auger Inn and other fine establishments. I've talked a lot about alcohol over the past few Plain Tales and mainly about the negative aspects, but it remains one of the few socially acceptable drugs that we can imbibe, with the obvious caveat that we do so with care, especially for pilots. Nevertheless, it's been around since the Stone Age, and jugs that carried fermented drinks have been found in the Neolithic period, over 10,000 years before Christ and his celebrated conversion of water into wine. Indeed, the oldest purpose-built brewery was found in a cave near Haifa in Israel, where a residue of 13,000-year-old beer made from wheat and barley was discovered. The ancient Chinese drank beer and wine made variously from grapes, hawthorn berries, honey and rice. The ancient Egyptians, Sumerians, Greeks, Babylonians, Indians and Romans, to name just a few, were all renowned for producing quality wines and beers. Proverbs 31, 6-7 of the Hebrew Bible recommends giving alcoholic drinks to those who are dying or depressed so that they can forget their misery. In the European Middle Ages, beer, wine and cider was an everyday drink for all classes and ages of people, and it was recorded that even nuns were given an allowance of six pints of ale a day. Native Americans fermented various beverages long before the Europeans settled their lands, and the Sub-Saharan Africans could brew a mean palm wine. Early sailors of the Royal Navy made stale water palatable by mixing it with various forms of alcohol, until the daily ration of half a pint of rum was written into regulations. It wasn't until 1970 that the daily grog ration was discontinued, which may not have been a bad thing for a modern fighting force, since the Royal Navy rum was 95.5% proof, or 54.6% alcohol by volume. With our propensity for travelling the world, fighter jocks, trash haulers, airline crews and the rest have always managed to find some fascinating watering holes too frequent to let the stress of the day gently drain away in convivial company over a drink or two. With that in mind, I asked the crew to tell me about one or two of their favourite establishments, and I'm sure that you, dear listener, might have some special ones to share with us as well. Dr. Steff tells me that. At first I was really excited about this assignment from Nick. It's a really cool idea to put together a compilation of our favourite bars and watering holes from all around the world to share with you. But my excitement quickly turned to a bit of concern as I realised that, despite my love of all things IPA, I really don't spend a lot of time in bars. I found myself struggling to think if there's any place I would even consider a regular favourite of mine. But as I considered where I would take my friends, if they were back in one of the various places I consider my hometown, I realised that there are a few places worthy of mention. The first is actually a place I've been going to well before I was of legal drinking age. Really, Steph? Don't worry, I wasn't actually consuming alcohol in bars before the legal age of 21 here in the States. 
This particular bar is called Molly Greens and it sits at the base of Brighton Ski Resort just outside of Salt Lake City, Utah. It's situated on the upper level of an A-frame building and when I would go skiing with my family in my youth we would eat our brown bag lunches in the picnic-like area they had set up on the downstairs level. Occasionally, we would be allowed to order food from the bar upstairs. Nachos or a pizza were a real treat. And sometimes, if I was there one-on-one -on -one with one of my parents, we would be allowed to sit quietly at one of the tables upstairs, even though, at the time, the bar was subject to the private club rules of Utah. Looking back, I'm not sure I can count how many times I've been to Molly Green's. Brighton Ski Resort is a favourite of mine, and the view from the restaurant looking up at the surrounding powder-capped peaks, usually with intertwined, freshly carved ski tracks, is just magnificent. The interior has the feel and decor of a cosy mountain cabin retreat, complete with a central fireplace for warming up on a cold day. And it doesn't hurt that they offer a fantastic selection of local Utah ales. Yes, Utah makes good craft beer. Nowadays, a typical day on the slopes for me includes at least several stops at Molly Greens, usually for a midday thirst quencher, again for lunch and later for après ski. If you happen to find yourself contemplating a ski trip to Utah, do yourself a favour and check out Brighton Ski Resorts. It's a bit off the typical tourist map, but you'll find a friendly and accessible mountain, great people, and of course, Molly Greens. I mentioned that I could think of a couple of bars worth sharing, but I think I've probably used enough time for this particular plain tale. Hopefully, if there's interest, Nick will make this into a bit of a series, and we can add a few more along the way. Cheers, y'all! Miami Rick remembers a wonderful-sounding watering hole in the subcontinent, the Aero Club of East Africa. Tucked away at the Wilson Airport in Kenya's capital Nairobi is perhaps one of the most overlooked jewels in aviation. As you walk through a set of old weathered wooden French doors under the club's wing insignia and pass a now silent Pratt & Whitney R985 Wasp Junior Radial Engine, your eyes can't seem to find a spot to look at for more than a second or two. The entryway is richly decorated with all sorts of old relics, airplane components and aviation maps of yesteryear. As my gaze wanders from spot to spot in a futile attempt to take it all in, the scent of this magical place starts to register. It's a quite peculiar combination of what seems to be Cavendish tobacco, bourbon, cigarette smoke, aviation gasoline and wood polish. Perhaps because of all the wood panelling that adorns the place. I slowly make my way through priceless artefacts, trying to picture in my mind the old aviators responsible for the smell of tobacco and bourbon I just smelled ten feet back. It's like I can almost hear the stories, the conversation and the laughter. Behind an old wooden bar, off to the side, a gentleman notices my presence and my mouth ajar, and invites me over to sit. His name is Willie, and has, by his account, been stationed behind that very bar for the last 42 years. 
Oh, the stories this gentleman must have. He pours me a generous glass of Glenlivet 25, and as I bring the libation to my lips, I recognise the smell as exactly what I sensed in the entryway. Willie carries on with story after story, and I feel like I've hit the jackpot. This kind old man, who seems almost relieved I walked in, shares countless tales of old aviators now long gone, the history and significance of the Aero Club, and how it shaped African aviation. His storytelling abilities are phenomenal, although I do suspect the 5,564-foot elevation and a mild case of jet lag had some influence on my amusement. Sadly, I had an early departure to Abu Dhabi the following morning, or I would have most decidedly stayed the entire night listening and trading stories with the aviators that still make this amazing watering hole a regular stop. As I left, a plaque on the wall caught my eye. It said, Old pilots never die. They just hang out in the Aero Club. Very fitting, as I'm sure you can still hear them through the hallways, just as I did that day. Oh, if those walls could talk. Captain Jeff has great memories from his Air Force days. When I think of the great bars that I've been to in my life, I think of many most of which were experienced by me during my time in the U.S. Air Force. Hickam Air Force Base Officers Club, the Kaneohe Bay Marine Corps Air Station O Club, Marine Corps Air Station Miramar Officers Club, Top Gun, and many more. If I had to narrow it down to two, I'd start with the most exotic, and exotic it was because of its location. A chain of islands in the middle of the Indian Ocean, 500 miles south of the Maldives, and thousands of miles from any continent, called the Chagos Archipelago, part of the British Indian Ocean Territory. In it, a picturesque atoll named Diego Garcia, home to a U.S. Air Force base. At the northernmost tip of the atoll's western coral rim sits the Diego Garcia's Officers Club. It's a very casual building with large open-air decks that overlook the Indian Ocean. The views are truly breathtaking. Another watering hole that I put on my list of Jeff's top two bars is one with much more history. Located deep in the heart of Texas on Randolph Air Force Base in San Antonio, arguably one of the most beautiful bases in terms of its architecture, is the Randolph Air Force Base Officers Open Mess. We're not there yet, though. After entering the front door to the right, walk down the stairs to the basement level. After allowing your eyes to adjust to the relative darkness, keep walking past the barber's shop to the far end of the basement and look for the Auger Inn. Taking its name from an old World War I aviation term, referring to the act of spiralling down to earth out of control after being shot down by the enemy, many a modern-day aviator has done the same in this historic stag bar. Two orange and white parachutes are draped across the ceiling with three-foot plywood models of aircraft flown at Randolph over the years along with squadron patches that are displayed along its walls. 
I spent many a night at the Orga whilst attending PIT, Pilot Instructor Training, in 1985, and its walls saw many a rousing beer call. Producer Liz spent virtually the whole of her working life in the financial district in downtown Toronto, known as Bay Street. She told me that going out for drinks after work was certainly a thing they did often, and Thursdays was the most popular day each week to head for one of the many watering holes. There were two places on extremes of the spectrum when it came to bars. The first was a classic dive bar in the basement of a somewhat sketchy downtown hotel, the Strathcona on York Street. When someone said, let's head for the Strath, everyone knew what we were going for. A dark and somewhat dingy place where you could enjoy inexpensive drinks served by mature waiters who had seen it all and always had a wisecrack or somewhat raunchy joke to tell. It was loud and smoky back in the days when smoking was allowed and a place you could definitely let your hair down. The Strathcona is still there and the pub, as they now call it, is still in the basement but it's been renovated and is much sleeker and more modern, a far cry from the Strath I once frequented. Another great place to go when we were feeling more flush was the library bar in the Royal York Hotel on Front Street. The Royal York is one of the grand railway hotels built by the Canadian Pacific and Canadian National Railways in many locations across Canada. The Chateau Frontenac in Quebec City, the Chateau Loria in Ottawa, the Banff Springs and Chateau Lake Louise in the Rockies, and many more. These are all amazing places from a bygone era. The Royal York is a huge hotel right across the street from Union Station. It's been renovated and beautifully maintained over the years and has an amazing atmosphere, offering many food and drink options. The library bar is right off the grand front lobby and is a cosy, dark wood panelled room with a calm, hushed atmosphere and a gorgeous bar. Cocktails are served by experienced bartenders and renowned mixologists. So glad it hasn't changed over the years. Well, thanks, crew, for all those lovely memories, and I just have time to add a couple of my own. The first is one that, sadly, isn't open to all in sundry, so it's unlikely you'll get to visit the Big Room in the Royal and Ancient Golf Club of St Andrews in Scotland, the home of golf. For a few years, when I served at the nearby RAF station, I was honoured with the chance to use the RNA as a house member. Behind the tall bay windows of the impressive curved frontage, the members would chat over a few drinks, perhaps some rare kummel, a smooth, clear, caraway-flavoured liquor, double distilled, historically in the Duchy of Prussia. It's a common drink found in most of the elite Scottish golf clubs. The big room was the heart of the club, and on its walls hung some of the finest works of golfing art in the world. The lockers, going back to the 1850s, which surround the walls, were used by the longest-serving members. The big room never stooped to a bar, 
one had to catch the eye of an old retainer in a white jacket, who would discreetly take an order and then return with your drink on a silver platter. I never tired of sipping something special while sitting in an overstuffed armchair, watching the nervous swings of golfers teeing off from beside the starter's box of the old course right outside the windows. Finally, I feel obliged to mention one of the most disgusting but delightful bars in the world, the truck, or as most American crews called it, the trailer, parked on a bit of rough ground near the airport and the crew hotels. This was the last stop of the determined drinker in Narita, Japan. After an evening that, in my case, started with a cheery shout from Hiroshi as we crowded into the Flyers Bar, moved on to the Bon Cafe, sometimes called the Spiral Staircase for those who couldn't read, for an all-you-could-eat teppanyaki, and then into the Barge Inn, so named after the problem some locals had in pronouncing Virgin, since Richard Branson was a part owner. At kick-out time there used to be just one place that would still be open, and there was a waiting bus to take you there. The truck was, literally, the back end of an articulated lorry that had been turned into a karaoke bar. Crowded into the gloomy interior were many pie-eyed pilots, accompanied by a steamy collection of tipsy flight attendants from all corners of the world, all crammed together. Sweaty bodies rubbed against each other, there was no alternative, and the frequent forays to the bar meant forcing a way through a rugby scrum of curvaceous ladies to return with many sapporos held over your head, giving everyone you passed a little beer shower. The only toilet facility was a deep storm drain around the back and in the pitch black. Sadly, many a swaying pilot or squatting flight attendant overbalanced into the disgusting muddy mess to return looking awful and smelling worse. Ah, those were the days. Over the years, the truck was improved and enlarged, but sadly, now it no longer opens. In those early days, though, it was undoubtedly the best. If you enjoyed this story, then please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show, and you can find us at airlinepilotguy.com.